God's goodness is the topic of many Christian books, cliche sayings, and Bible studies. But what about when life is full of hard things that don't feel good? What happens when good beliefs crash into bad circumstances? How is God always good? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning and for this time together. I thank you for Maggie and for um, just the incredible work that you continue to do in each one of our lives. Um, I thank you for her willingness to be here today, and I pray that you would bless our conversation, bless our time, give us the time that we need, and um, help us to be faithful with the way we speak about you and the way we speak about others. Yes, Lord, and I'm so grateful to know you, that you chose to love me first. Um, Lord, thank you so much for Emily preparing this time that we can share together. And Lord, I do ask that you would use my words to draw people to you, that they would know you are a, a good God who's loving and strong and merciful, and that you do comfort us in all um, our sorrows. Uh, bless this time now and be glorified through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to the Always Good Podcast. I'm Emily Jane, and today I'm talking with a friend about some really intense topics and how God has been good even in the midst of many traumatic events. Please know while my desire is not to dwell on the details of these traumatic events, many of the topics being discussed today may be triggering to people who have lived through sexual abuse, unstable childhoods, or pregnancy and birth-related trauma. Please listen with caution, and if your heart is not ready for some of these topics, feel free to skip this episode and come back when you're ready. Maggie Deemer is with me in the studio today, and I am so grateful for her life and testimony. I got to know Maggie a little bit better in 2018 when I went over to her house a few times to help with cleaning. Her passion for the Lord has always been evident to me, but I didn't know very much about her life and her walk with Christ until recently. Maggie graciously typed out pages and pages of her life story for me to review before we met up to record, and I was undone over and over by how God has woven her into his story and how he has not let her go. Maggie, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, it's interesting you mentioned coming to my house. Yeah. As I was thinking about our talk today, you know, many people come to our house and see it, and it's a, you know, beautiful, all new floors, you know, new kitchen, um, new paint, and, you know, you just see, oh, this is a nice, new-looking house. And I always have to remind them, we remodeled this house. This house didn't always look like this, and sometimes they pull out the big photo album, and I take them page by page through, like, this is what it looked like when we bought it. This is when we did this part, that part. This is when we had bats. This is when we had rodents. This is, you know, and, you know, it just is always shocking to them. In the same way, when someone meets me hmm. today, they see who I am today. So the work we're doing today is like getting out the old book, right? Mm -hmm. And starting to flip through the pages of this is where I was. Um, this is how God has taught me. This is how he's changed me. This is how he's grown me. Um, but, it, you know, if you didn't know that, you might not, you yeah. know, yeah. know that about me, that um, that there is there is a past. It's hard and it's ugly <laughs> parts of it. Um, so I, I'm grateful to do this. Yeah, I'm super grateful for you. Um, I'm going to structure today's episode a little differently because of the story and how God has drawn you to himself. Um, it's woven in and out of so many different events. So for today, I want to start by talking about your early years, some of the initial things that shaped who you were as a child and your first interaction with Christ through your grandparents. Okay. So I was born to, um, I was the first child my parents had, um, but about a year into their marriage, it started to 
um, really crumble and it started into a very messy divorce you know a lot of um back and forths um a lot of hard things were happening in their life and i was just kind of the child that was going back and forth and um dealing with a lot of a lot of that um i was a sick baby i had a lot of ear infections um and when i was 14 months old i was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis <clears throat> so that became a part of my life um i started medication very young for that and was being monitored and they didn't know you know what that would mean for me for my development um but really those first three four years um i do have memories but not very happy memories just a lot of um being scared and when i would go with my birth dad that was a scary place for me and i would try to hide and my mom would have to drag me kicking and screaming um and I know that things were happening there that were scary for a child. Um, I don't know the intentions of people's hearts in that, but for me, I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel loved. Um, I didn't feel nurtured there. Um, so th that was probably some of the earliest traumas. Um, my birth dad did end up remarrying, and my mom did remarry. And it kind of things were building up to this point where the man my mom remarried wanted to adopt me. And my birth dad actually did sign off parental rights and was no longer in my life. Um, and then I was adopted, I think it was five, my kindergarten year. Um, but I did have this wonderful set of grandparents, my birth dad's parents who were believers. Um, I don't have any memories of them, I, I think I kind of got cut off from relationship with them even sooner than my birth dad. Um, however, I do have, uh, my home is filled with things my grandpa made, the toy box my kids' toys are in, says a little plaque to Maggie, love grandpa, you know, and there's a little chair he made this up in our upstairs bathroom. And he, he they, I was their first grandbaby and they, they just loved me. And, but sadly, just the way the situation went, they were asked to no longer have relationship with me too so they were not in my life um however my grandmother did continue to send me birthday cards and christmas cards every year and so they were i knew them through the cards i don't know if i could have picked them out if i saw them in the grocery store but even just through those cards i knew that they were christians i knew they loved god um you know i knew they cared about me i knew they were praying for me um so that was kind of the early the early years. Okay, so at that point, as a five-year-old, you had a basic understanding that your grandparents were Christians from their cards, or no? I don't I don't know if I even knew that much. Um, that kind of grew as I grew and understood. You know, I was able to read the card, and my, my parents would tell me about them. But, but they were praying for you because they were praying for they me. They loved you, yes, very dearly. Um, so, and you didn't have any other religious influence at that point. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, Neither one of my parents uh, were believers, um, so we never went to church. We maybe had a Bible, some kind of artifact thing that was on the shelf somewhere. Mm. Um, I did have friends who went to church, and so I did go with them sometimes. Um, I, I know I did some youth groups and um, some summer camps, so that, you know, I was aware. There's a vague uh, awareness. Yes, right. 
How did your childhood from age six to your early teen years impact you as a young adult? Well, really, when my dad adopted me, you know, that was a really positive thing in my life. I immediately bonded with him. He was very loving. He loved, I mean, he says he fell in love with my mom and he fell in love with me. You know, it was just, he, I would go on their dates together and Aww. he, and you know, he, my mom was working, so he would sometimes take me when she was working. And so, um, my arthritis went into remission when I was young, like four or five, right around that time. I didn't need the medicine anymore. So that was no longer part of my life. And we just started doing life together, building birdhouses and running errands. And he would take me to the daddy-daughter dance and we would go Girl Scout daddy-daughter camping. And he was just an outstanding father, full of energy and life. And we and I just thrived in that. Um, they did have a, a child together. So I had a sister when I was six and loved her. I mean, that was a just, super fun age to have a sister. Oh, yeah. And she was so cute and long, curly blonde hair, and, you know, just just very happy times. Um, but I would say around maybe when I was 10 ish, his health started to fail. He just started being um, less consistent, just sleeping more, having migraine headaches that would mm. keep him home, um, spending more time in bed. Um, not making it to things, not taking me places like he used to. And then by about age 12, he was no longer working and fully, I would say, incapacitated by mm. his health, migraine headaches, and then depression. And there was a lot of things now I understand that were kind of coming out in his life at that time from things in his past that were hard. And it it just took him down. And so it was that was hard to have someone so strong and healthy so stable that I just felt so safe with suddenly no longer be there like I knew uh, my mom at that time decided to start a business and so she opened her business and my dad was home but he was very sick he would sleep all the time and that was a, just a big change from having you know really a stay-at-home mom for many of my childhood years and a healthy dad to now she's working, dad's sick, mm. and I'm sort of stepping up as that firstborn, you know, we're gonna keep the house going, the cooking and the cleaning, you know, they try not to put that on me, but I just, you did, you know, mm. you take that on. And um, so that that was a hard, and now we're talking middle school, which is hard. Mm. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's a, puberty and, you know, you're learning how to, you know, have friend groups and people liking people don't um, a lot of insecurity mm-hmm. all of that was happening and then I was on my way home from a um, youth group that I had gone to with a friend it was um, a January night very icy um, very cold negative like school had been closed that day because of the temperature and the wind chill oh <laughs> but they still had youth groups yeah of course so her dad, her dad is driving She's in my friends in the front. My best friend is in the back with me, and we just have lap belts. There aren't any chest straps in the vehicle sure. that we're in. And um, I'm 12 years old. We hit a patch of ice. It the vehicle just starts sliding, and we just go head on to this huge tree. I mean, just full speed, head on. And my head goes forward, and my nose is broken. I hit the seat in front of me, and my friend next to me has a big gash in her head, and the car's just dead, and it's getting cold, and my friend's dad runs up to the closest house and calls an ambulance. Um, so 
that was a pretty traumatic thing. Uh, they took me to the hospital and the, the damage to my nose was so severe. I remember they just said, this is gonna require surgery, but we don't know if one surgery will sure. do it. <clears throat> and so the next day I had surgery, um, spent a couple more days there, went home, just my face was just totally bruised. Um, and then that really started the recovery from that, which was a full year. They told me with that type of a injury, it takes a year for the swelling to fully go down to know what is what what are we working with. And so I had a cast and I remember going back to school already so self-conscious. Yeah, that's so hard. Oh, <laughs> just with this big cast and everyone knew it happened and they were all staring and, you know, just thing taped to my face. Um, and a year later, the it was clear that the surgery was not effective or didn't mm. it didn't hold up like it needed sure. to so I had a second surgery and a whole another year of recovery so that was hard for you know and middle school was also where I had a teacher who was just inappropriate he um he would just do things in front of the class sexual things that were not right and it's a confusing time I think as a teen and you're kind of understanding sexuality and um you know, so it's kind of funny, but you're kind of uncomfortable. Um, I also was in an after-school class with him, and then I also went to his home for voice lessons. So he was a very influential person in my life. Things happened that were inappropriate. Um, later, he was put in prison, and mm -hmm. I just remember hearing that and realizing, whoa, that really was wrong. You know, yeah. it's interesting how in the midst of it, you might not see that it's wrong, or you might think, oh, you know, it's fine. But... I also realized how grateful I was that I, I had put some boundaries up. I remember, mm. I remember saying, no, you, you know, I'll tell the police if you do anything more. Um, mm. There were girls who didn't, and it's very, very sad. So I think that was kind of the, the beginning of some of the sexual abuse. Um, but I got through, I got through my uh, middle school years. I know after my um, second surgery, after all the swelling had gone down, I told my mom I didn't like how I looked. Mm. I wanted another surgery. I didn't like my face. My nose looked different, Yeah, you know, and and we decided not to, you know, and just to live with that. But that was definitely something I struggled with, you know, my physical appearance. Also, in the midst of that, my rheumatoid arthritis returned. Mm. So it's kind of an interesting thing. Really bad. The worst mm. flare I've ever had. All my joints, pretty much. Fingers, toes, knees, elbows, hips. <laughs> So, um, started and it that. had been in remission since had, five. Yeah. So you had no idea, like oh. out of the blue. Oh yeah. That's so hard. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, I also just find it interesting some of the timing of some of these things in correlation mm -hmm. with some of the stressors in my life, and yeah. this is just something I'm still trying to piece together. I don't fully understand it, but it came back hard. So gratefully, medication just one, um, one real mild medication kept it at bay. And I continue to be very active and, you know, do lots of things, but mm. I had to stay on the medicine or else it would come back really yeah. bad. Yeah. So by the time you were in high school, you had experienced several significant life-changing, albeit traumatic events. You said in your story that you, um, that you typed out that the person who came out of high school was totally different than the person who entered high school. Yeah. Um, can you share a brief overview of some of the things that shaped who you became and then share some about, uh, sorry, I'm going to restart that. Can you share a brief overview of some of the things that shaped who you became and then share about the first time the gospel was clearly shared with you? 
Absolutely. So I remember going in high school with very high morals. I just, I need. I, I had I wanted to stay pure for marriage. Um, I did not want to smoke or drink or do drugs. And these were and I was always a good student, so I was going to do really well. My you know keep my grades up. And um, and I remember that being really hard when you know now I'm seeing some friends at a football game and I think they're smoking and that really bothered me. Like you know I really thought those people felt the same way I did. And hearing rumors of people getting boyfriends and things happening, <clears throat> but that wasn't going to be me. Um, and it started that way. I think I was 15 when I had my first boyfriend. Um, and I felt really good to be loved and to have someone care about me. And I thought he was, had the same morals as I did. Mm. But as our relationship continued, I learned, oh, he smokes. Oh, he, he does drugs, he drinks. And instead of at that point saying no, I'm not going to be a part of that. I joined him. I really did. I, And he did not push that at all. I myself started mm -hmm. stealing cigarettes from my parents and got myself addicted to smoking and then started the drinking and started the drugs. And um, it, it was amazing how quickly, you know, it's mm -hmm. just one little compromise and then another. And then all of a sudden I'm living this life that I didn't think I would. Um, a lot of that was for fun and for acceptance I think that's kind of how it started um, but it didn't stay that way I was starting I was doing these things on my own sometimes not even without friends around to I think self-medicate mm -hmm. I think I was numbing things um, it was you know, my relationship with him went to the next level I did not want that that was I felt very bad about that but then it was like oh well that's just another thing I said I'd never do that I'm doing and all of these choices were bringing upon me guilt mm -hmm. now I would tell you at that time I didn't believe I didn't believe in God so I didn't really believe that we had a moral right or wrong or any moral consequences I mean we got to be nice to people and I wasn't going to murder or steal but I was doing what I felt made me happy. And to me, that was what life was about. I really thought that we were like animals. We just mm. died and there was nothing afterwards. So why withhold something that would yeah. make you happy? It was a very, um, just driven by my, my flesh really. Yeah. But I wasn't happy and those things were affecting me. And then it's a horrible cycle because then the drugs numb it. Right. <laughs> And then I got to where I didn't like how I felt unless I was high. Mm. And I, I was just, when's the next time I can get the drugs again? <clears throat> so this was kind of starting 15, 15, and you know, it was kind of experimenting with my boyfriend. 16, I got my driver's license, which opened up some new freedom. At this point, my dad's still very, very sick. My mom's still working a lot. Um, I kind of have a lot of freedom and I continue to maintain my grades. Sure. I was awesome at home, cooked, cleaned, kept my room tidy. You know, I really kept up, I think, a double life of the perfect student, the perfect child, but also this other side. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to add more stress to the family either. I mean, look at my poor father. You know, he was in so much pain. I, my mom was working and I just knew and my sister was starting to have troubles too and I so I had to be the good one I had to be right. so it was just kind of a really crazy time but I was also 
very vulnerable in that place. Mm-hmm. And I think, so when, when I look at what happened when I was 16, I, I, now I can look back and understand a bit of some, some of how that happened. Um, it was wrong, but I think there were things that made me more vulnerable to the situation. Um, I had achieved my black belt in Taekwondo, and, which was a huge accomplishment. Yeah. You know, I'd started at 13 and I was there twice, sometimes three times a week, you know, and just worked all the way up. And um, it was so I had a special invitation to a black belt only class. And I was usually one of the only girls, which was kind of fun, which made me feel even more powerful, yeah, like right? Strong, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so the owner of the studio, I noticed he had been kind of giving me kind of looks like he noticed me, which I liked. Um, there's a little fear, kind of uncomfortableness with that, but also I felt powerful. And so that that was, I was 16, it was one of the first times I actually drove myself to my class. And he asked me to come out with him and he would drive me to my car. And I, I just, something in my spirit said, oh, that just, that's kind of weird, I don't know. I said, no, I think I'm just gonna go. And he's like, please, why don't you just come with me? And it was kind of this like privilege, mm. come, come with me. You know, I noticed you, I wanted I want this time with you. And sadly, he had intentions that day and took me to another part of the parking lot and locked the doors. And, you know, a lot of things happened that were very upsetting, very confusing, mm-hmm. because there was this sense of like, but I kind of wanted it, I wanted the attention. I felt like I was honored. He noticed me, I'm important. And so that, and when I look back over my story, I think after that day, um, I had a lot of questions about my identity and who I was. You know, I went into high school with all these thoughts that I was going to be this person, but now I'm kind of living like this other person. Who am I? And I believe that a, a lie was believed in that moment that I was bad, mm. I was dirty, I was immoral, and why fight it? Mm. Just be it. And um, I think the downward between that moment and um, 17, 18, like the spiral, it went down and went fast. Um, I ended up breaking up my relationship with the boyfriend and then just a lot of promiscuity and now the drugs. I mean, that's when it really became my coping. Mm-hmm. Um, and sadly, we did alert the police about the Taekwondo instructor and they just said he didn't do enough. Mm. to do anything and for me that was also very hard like yeah. these, you know they're supposed to help you and he's still he got away with it they did he did get kicked out from the gym he was teaching at and there were things but just knowing he was still out there yeah. and um it's so it was, yeah it's just very confusing um i've had to look back at that and even what is true in this yeah. you know and something with sexual abuse is you do f- it's easy to feel like you were responsible and to not see the wrong in mm-hmm. that. Um, so that has been a, a big part of me healing from that is to kind of sort out what was my part, what was wrong, what was really going on. Um, but it, that was the end of my Taekwondo too. Yeah. Um, that I no longer was going to classes. I had all this time in my schedule now and it was just bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the power too, I've understood, the power I felt um, was taken from me. I 
I felt like I, it wouldn't happen again. I would be the master of this. And it led to a lot of real aggressive behavior with boys. Um, and it, you know, I think that was just part of, you are not going to do anything to me, so yeah. I'm going to do this first, and yeah. I'm going to be the one in control. So kind of broken, a lot of brokenness. So I would say by my, um, oh, by my senior year, you know, I was 17, um, I was getting myself in a lot of really bad situations. And at this point, your parents still had no idea? I was starting to get, that relationship was starting okay. to get strained, too. Because I was lying and I was not coming home. At the point that you stop caring, I feel like it becomes evident to other people a lot faster. Yeah, yeah. But they also just, I don't know if they, there was some of it. I don't know if they could really do much. Sure. And, and where the th struggles they were having, and again, my sister was having struggles. So and by that point, tried. you were almost an adult. Who could make your own decisions yeah. in a lot of ways, yeah. too. Yeah, and I yeah. was just going to do my thing, yeah. you know. So I remember them trying to kind of, no, you know, ground me in different things. But my grades were starting to struggle, too, mm -hmm. which was really hard because I kept a four point up to my, I think, the end of my junior year. Like, mm -hmm. and I really wanted that. And, yeah. but, you know, the schoolwork's heavier, the studying's harder. Um, I'm doing so many drugs, you know, it's just like, I, I wasn't keeping it together. It's a lot to juggle. Um, and th the, this, the things that were happening, the situations I was finding myself in were carrying bigger consequences. Mm -hmm. You know, rumors were going around that were true, that were horrible. Things I never would have thought I would do. Um, so that's when I, I met this young man <laughs> in my um, civics class my senior year. And he was tall and handsome kind of quiet but really smart and we just ended up sitting together we were some of the only seniors it was mostly freshmen in the class so we kind of sat in the back row and um just started talking and he he's like he was great at physics i was barely making it through i'm like would you help me with, with some studying and so he could help me study and then he noticed um i had a flat tire on my car and he fixed my flat tire and then he's like, I think, you know, I, that noise it's making, I can fix that. I started doing repairs in my car. And then he was helping, you know, my parents with things. And it was just like this. He was so mature and so kind. And I felt very safe with him. He sat with me one time. I was out in the hallway crying after a rumor. <laughs> that was true. Was going around. And he just listened and cared. And it wasn't to get anything in return, mm -hmm. right? It was just <clears throat> genuine love. Um, it. I still definitely f used my kind of my power <laughs> struggle, you know, with him and tried to um, manipulate him. And but he had morals. He actually had things he would not do, and he would say no. And I couldn't, I couldn't persuade him. I always mm -hmm. could persuade. I always could. And this is just very intriguing to me. And not much, not far into our relationship, he tells me he's a Christian, and. Um, we start to have these kind of spiritual conversations. Now, I told you at this point, I knew the gospel. It wasn't that I didn't know. I knew it, and I had rejected it, mm. and I didn't want it. And so any time he would bring it up, I was very hard, very resistant. I would tell him 
um, that he was crazy <laughs> to believe that it was true. And I really just thought religion was man's creation to kind of do with the fear of death. And I'm not afraid of dying. I'm just going to live and I'm going to do my thing. And, you know, we'd have these talks, but he just, here's the thing, part of what I believed, because I loved science. I was, I was always just drawn to that. And I learned in my science classes and it was confirmed at home that we were evolved. There was no creator. This was an accident, a random chance. Mm. And so then my understanding of Christians was that they didn't believe in science. Mm. And so to be a Christian meant you didn't believe in science. And that was really kind of what I understood. Well, John was a Christian and he believed in science and he could debate (laughs) and explain everything I knew from the fossil record, you know, to natural selection, all from this biblical worldview. I'd never heard anything like that before. And, and that was, you know, that was interesting to me. It still didn't change me. I absolutely wanted nothing to do with it, but, um, that was the first time I had experienced that. Um, so he was definitely sharing the gospel with me, um, and I was rejecting. Mm. I told him I will never believe in Jesus. I shouted it, I think, in Denny's while I was smoking <laughs> my cigarette. It was pretty, I was very hard and very adamant. And he was still just willing to be your friend yes. and be there for you. That yes. is beautiful. Yes. Um, so your view of God at that point was non-existent, didn't care. Mm-mm. Okay. Yep. Um, so then talk a little bit about going into spring break of your senior year you were starting to be interested in him is that correct yes but not interested in the gospel he was sharing um what was it like when god broke through to you and kind of how he used your spring break to do that yes well my spring break i went to cancun mexico with my closest friends and we partied and drank and did crazy things john went to florida with his friends and did a lot of really alone time with the Lord praying. Like we both were feeling our relationship deepening. We were spending more and more time together. Mm -hmm. We really liked each other. And so he was having this kind of conflict, like I'm a believer. She is not, she's made it clear that she's not open. And so he really came back with the plan of ending our relationship. That was just the right thing to do. So there was a, a, a youth group event his church was doing. Um, he invited me to, started at the church with some skits and games and testimonies and then we went to royal scott bowling alley and did bowling all night long it was literally an all night okay i love it all right so he's like hey do you want to go and i'm like no but i don't have anything else going on i'll go that's fine and i you know i like bowling and i spent a lot of time at the bowling alley doing other things that were not good so but yeah i go so he um invited me i go to the church um some people shared some testimonies and i remember thinking that's nice it's not for me like the pastor prayed um for people to receive christ i hardened i was used to it this wasn't the first time i'd been in this setting and just very hardened no just get through this this is not what i came here for um but then we drove to the bowling alley and on that drive i started to feel something changing in my heart and i didn't i knew it was the lord i knew it was something spiritual something outside of myself Mm. but i didn't want it i was still resistant okay so we kind of get we're bowling and 
we're doing their thing we're eating pizza and it's getting to where I'm trying to ignore this thing and I can't ignore it and it's getting more and more loud and obtrusive and I can't make it stop and it's just like a sound that was getting louder and louder and louder till I can't hear anything else but this blaring sound right well I knew it was cod but it was a very loving sense it was a it was um it was a very safe feeling like come to me I love you type mm-hmm. um I, and so I finally told John I'm like I I think we're supposed to pray and he was just was like what <laughs> I said I think we're supposed to pray that prayer you know <laughs> like to be a Christian he said really I'm like yeah I just know it's time it's time like I didn't ex- all expect it but it, it was time and so we found a little side alley you know high all alleyway there and the bowling balls were crashing you can imagine the sounds <laughs> <laughs> so peaceful <laughs> we literally kneel down and he prays with me and I pray confess my sins and receive God and receive him as savior and it was something I didn't realize how much I had been resisting it Mm. and it was a surrender I am not gonna fight this anymore I believe you I receive you I'm not gonna fight you I follow you you know I'm yours it was a full Mm. surrender to him and it was remarkable what happened in that moment I had no idea how yeah. it would change me. Yeah. How did it change you? What was your life <laughs> it like after me. that? Well, night? it was immediate. Yeah. Um, the first thing I noticed was a very physical lightening of my shoulders. Like I had been carrying bricks, heavy bricks, and they were lifted. I just felt like I was so light and free. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because I've looked back at this experience and I continue to understand it more. You know, in the moment, yeah. there's so much that happened and I didn't know what I know now, but I understand so much more of it. I keep, I still learn from it. What happened, what truly happened in the spiritual world um, that I was actually experiencing in physical and emotional ways too. It was crazy. So I really do believe that burden was the guilt and the shame that, that I was trying to numb. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, But just was getting heavier and heavier was not going away. Um, And then the joy, I just was, just over I mean we cried and cried but I was so happy and I just remember thinking this can't possibly last and it was there the next day and then it was there a week later and it was there a month later and like this it was the Holy Spirit living in me um uh, I quit all drugs and substances that day Mm. and I really do think that is because they were they were medicating something that no longer needed to be medicated it was I didn't have a taste for it. I didn't want it. Mm-hmm. No, when I was with my friends and they would smoke, you know, there was always that kind of like, oh, I kind of want to because that was familiar. But I wasn't going to that to help me. Mm-hmm. I had a new help. I didn't need it. And then just an immediate desire to tell the world about mm-hmm. Jesus. Like, where? Why do people not know? Yeah. You know, it was like, I have found the cure to everyone's sickness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I need to tell them. They must not know. It was, and it was just such an innocent, like, mm-hmm. that childlike faith. I didn't know anything. Yeah. I didn't know the Bible. I didn't know any scripture verses, but I'm telling people, like, I, you got to meet this one. You got to know this Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like, he changed me. Mm-hmm. You've got to know him. You've got to meet him. My whole life changed. My whole direction. I had new friends now. I mean, I had to pretty much lose my friends. Yeah. Which is hard in high school. 
um, my whole direction for college was new. Um, I was going to go to one college and I chose to do a local college and just start working. Um, it changed my relationships at home. It was hard mm-hmm. for my parents um, to, you know, to see me change. Um, and there was definitely some hard feelings I felt like there. I tried to tell my sister about the Lord and got a little bit of grief about that. And so felt, you know, a little bit like some persecution there. Um, but I just, more than anything else, I just wanted to know him. I wanted to know more about him. I wanted to read the Bible. I wanted to be mature. I wanted to grow because I felt like just this baby and knew nothing. And so I did. I just plugged in every Bible study and accountability and whatever. If it was happening, I was there. I loved worship music. I got on the worship team. You know, it was a total different life for me in that mm-hmm. moment. Yep. Your early walk with the Lord was not easy. You lost friends, loved ones, and faced more trials. You said that your earliest understanding of God's goodness was that life was good mm-hmm. um, because that first phase of your salvation was so good. Um, Can you quickly walk through the first seven years of your marriage and some of the ways God began to work on your heart through trials? Yes, so I get saved. John and I are now dating. Like, there's no, you know what? And we are just inseparable. He um, proposes a year later and we get married a year later. So it was a week after my 20th birthday such happy times we buy this old fixer-upper house and we're working on that and I start developing a love for exercise and teaching fitness classes and I did my first triathlon and um it was just it really was was, everything was so much easier and happy and there wasn't all this mess of all my my poor choices you know I was doing it God's way and he was blessing us and um but the exercise started to become more than just a hobby it started to control me and it I don't know when I finally realized it but it got to be where I was it was like an addiction it was just like the drugs like I couldn't that's how I functioned that's how I dealt with things I you know it was just my whole day was around the next workout and then I I got way too thin and to where my husband had to say you know this has gone too far and so that was I think my first real wrestling with the reality that I can be a Christian Mm -hmm. and I can still have these patterns that are wrong it was idolatry Um, I was not trusting the Lord it was just trusting in something else and breaking of that was hard so um, I had to definitely bring in a lot of people to keep me accountable and it was hard to put on weight, you know, after you've lost it. It always just felt backwards to gain weight by I need, so I wasn't healthy. Um, and then uh, and my my periods had stopped. So that was another interesting thing. Like, they'd stopped early in our marriage, but definitely were not coming back. And the doctors were like, if you ever want to have a family, like, this is going to be an issue. But we, we were young. We are like, kind of, yeah. you know, yeah, whatever. Um, but then when we were almost to our five-year wedding anniversary it was april this time of year 
And John's mom, who was wonderful, John, I, his parents took me in, his mom especially, mm-hmm. took me in with all my mess and all my immaturity, you know, and loved me and she rejoiced. She was at my baptism and she always mm-hmm. wanted to hear whatever God was teaching me and just celebrated life with me. She was, she was just a godly woman who could be content in her home. Her kitchen was always smelled wonderful and the house was always so warm and inviting and we'd go there for Sunday meals. Um, and just a quiet, just lovely woman. So she had been in a hospital with some heart, some chest pain, heart things, and she had been sent home on some medications and we don't still know exactly what happened, but in the night she was gasping for air. And so John's dad started CPR and called the ambulance and um, her heart like had started beating irregularly, not sufficiently. Sure. So they were able to get it beating again and rush her to the hospital. So um, John and I followed the ambulance there, not sure what was going to happen. We didn't know if she would be alive or dead. And um, that was, it was terrifying. That was, I remember um, he asked me to pray. His sister was with us in the car. And I felt like the Lord gave me the scripture, um, for I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I just remember thinking whether it's life or death, we have his love. He loves her. He loves us. It'll be okay. Well, we get there and she's alive, but not awake. Um, she's breathing, which is encouraging, and her heart is beating, but they said there's been extensive brain damage yeah. from the lack of oxygen from when her, heart, when her heart wasn't beating right, and only time will tell the extent of the damage. So we're like, okay, well, you know, we're praying, and, you know, day passes, and she opens her eyes, and we're so excited. She's alive, you know? She's breathing, her heart's beating, and then a week goes by, and they're like, it's probably not going to be much more than what she is right now, mm. she, which was pretty much she'd be awake and she'd kind of look around, she'd go to sleep and she, she'd kind of move and, um, but she wasn't talking, you know, she wasn't doing any, you know, movements that were willful. It was more kind of impulse things and um, there was a feeding tube and a trach. Um, which we hoped would maybe, if she progressed, would come out. And they said, really, the first year is going to be the big test, but there's been extensive damage. She might not recover much more than this. So that was really hard. You know, what do you do? Mm-hmm. You know? And so as a family, um, we really felt like the best thing would be to bring her home and to just care for her. Um, rather than, there were not very many services. It would have been very expensive to put her in a home and so we did. We brought her home and started a kind of this journey of taking care of her. Um, it ended up working out that John and I were the primary caregivers. You know, I was working and he had his own business, so he stopped the business. We lived on my income and we just fully, he was there all day. I'd go in the morning and come back in the evening and made her food and um, did her baths and all the care of taking care of a you know an incapacitated person um it really felt like a mission like 
this is what God called us to do. And I was so devoted to it because he had saved me. You know, I just, I wanted to live my life for him. Mm -hmm. I was not living for myself anymore. Like I just really felt like whatever you have for me, I want to do it, Lord. So this was very clear. This is what I have for you to do. So it started off with a lot of excitement and, um, you know, it's encouraging, you know, the church rallies around and they're bringing meals and people are helping with this and that. Well, that kind of after a year kind of faded. And then by two years, you know, we're just kind of in the thick of it. But early on in taking care of her, I started to feel this um, promise from the Lord that that we would have a family someday. And it just kind of started little, you know, something in his word or someone would say something or just a sense. And I'm like, God, is this really from you? Because I really do want to be a mother. I really do. And, you know, now we've been married five years. I'm like, oh, this is kind of what we thought. You know, this is when we'd start a family. So I was taking care of her one morning and was reading. I was sitting next to her bed reading in Proverbs, and I read what the, this is Proverbs 10, 24, what the wicked dreads will come, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. And it was just like immediately I thought of being a mother. I just felt like that was a promise of being a mother. That was what I desired. And I felt like he said, I see you, what you're doing, and I'm going to honor you and give you a family. It just felt like this just little, and then you're always wondering, was that really God? Well, that same day my period started. I hadn't had one in five years. And it was just like, yes, God's going to give us a family. And it was kind of this, like, so exciting. Like, this is actually going to happen. So you think it's going to happen, right? (laughs) Well, it it didn't happen right away. And, you know, I think I understood that maybe it could take a little bit of time. But, you know, a year later, we still weren't pregnant. And then my cycle started to get really hard and very irregular. I was having hard other things, depression and- And you were still caring for his mom. Yes, and this was also the stress of caring for his mom. I mean, she was, um, she was not getting better and her body was starting to change and things were just getting hard. It was harder to bathe her and her muscles were getting tighter and we're all just going through this grief, right? Yeah. It's hard. My husband's struggling. You know, we're in a marriage. We're trying to like be married and do this, and and just it's hard stuff. Yeah. And then the, and so I finally went to the doctor, and like you know, I feel like we should have gotten pregnant by now. And they're like, we really think it is the stress, mm-hmm. and that's why you're not able to have a baby and so this got really confusing for me because I was doing what God called me to do and he was going to bless me right yeah and he promised me this and he wasn't giving it to me (laughs) and it just felt like some kind of a cruel torture experiment (laughs) like I I knew he was good and I knew he loved me but it did not feel good it it hurt and then it hurt every time my friends got pregnant and then it just felt like every month someone knew, you know, I got the phone call. And then my sisters-in-law, who weren't in the thick of the caregiving, well, they were starting their families. That was really hard. Yeah. Um, I wanted to be taking care of a baby, not an, an adult. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't like it was a short-term care. It was long, and you didn't necessarily know the outcome. You didn't have a promise that it was going to all end the way you wanted. And Oh, no. She could stay like that for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, about two years into it is when I just started to really unravel. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then the infertility was just adding another dimension of struggle. Um, it got really bad um, to where I wanted to give up. I really did. I didn't want to go do the work there anymore. I got to where I had a hard time going through my day, getting out of bed. I remember I'd wash my hair, but then drying it felt like that was so much work. I don't have the energy to even dry it. You know, it's just the little things. Everything mm -hmm. felt like a mountain and um, just a lot of crying. Um, but this was, uh, this was where my faith got some deep roots. Okay. So yeah. I was still in the word. I was in the Psalms literally underlining and highlighting yeah. all the time like oh mm. the way the psalmist writes their lament this is how i feel you know i could just relate with that um oh, what, but i always felt like what do i need to do god because mm. i think i had this idea that if i did it right then things would go right <laughs> so yeah. i always felt like this is there's something i'm not doing there's something yeah. i'm missing would you say your view of god's goodness was still tied to circumstances and like if yeah. good things are happening, then he's being good. I think there was some of that. No, I, I, that wasn't always taught in the church we were at, but I think I still felt like, well, surely I must be doing something wrong. Because, okay, yeah. you know, what is it? And I, nothing I did would change it. It just stayed hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I couldn't change it. And um, that was when I really kind of hit that, that point of like, realization that God was not letting it change, that mm. he was keeping it right here. He could change it, but he was choosing not to. Mm. And somehow that had to fit into his good plan. And I just had a hard time getting my mind around that. Mm. Um, and I, I just remember um, hearing about gratitude and thankfulness and contentment in all circumstances and thinking, can I really be content in this, in this mess where my body's a mess, the situation's hard, I'm not getting pregnant? Does he really think I, I, I could be happy in this place without things changing? I thought things had to change and then I would be happy yeah. again. But it was like this new understanding that I could be happy in this place. So that's when I wrote, can, do you want me to read it? Yeah. So I wrote this little story, it's not long. Um, this kind of came to me just, just kind of as not a vision like that but i just saw this kind of a picture in my mind of this is kind of what god was showing me um it says there once was the father who loved his daughter very very much as an expression of his love he wrapped a gift and laid it before her eager to see the joy its contents would bring the daughter was very close to her father and never doubted his great love. But on that day when the gift was laid before her, she didn't even notice it. Her focus was on a different gift. The other gift, which had captured her attention, came wrapped in shiny paper. It was a good gift, and she had seen her father give it to many of her sisters. Her father had promised that one day she would be the recipient of this treasured gift. And her, father, her heart fluttered with excitement as she wondered when that day would come. Days turned to weeks, weeks turned to months, and the daughter remained completely oblivious to the carefully wrapped package that lay before her. She saw more and more of her sisters receiving the gift that her heart so desperately longed for, and the hope within her started to wither. It seemed that the more time went on, this desire which once filled her with joy and excitement now brought only bitterness and pain. Then one day, one of her closest sisters received the gift. This sister wasn't even longing for the gift, yet on that day it was given to her. 
It took all the strength she had, but the daughter forced herself to rejoice with the sister on that day. But as soon as she was alone, she cried. The crying turned to sobbing as the reality of the situation settled in her mind. In great despair, she cried out to the father, Why? You promised to give me that gift. When will my day come? Must I watch my closest sister, who didn't even desire the gift, experience the joy within it, while I still remain empty-handed? This pain was more than I can bear. Please help me. And then the veil was lifted, and for the first time she saw the gift the father had placed before her many months ago. Its wrapping was ordinary, not like the gift with the shiny wrapping that she had seen her sisters open. There seemed to be nothing spectacular about the gift, but something caught her attention. There on the top of the package was her name, written in the unmistakable handwriting of her father. She sat frozen in the moment for what felt like an eternity. Then she opened, or she felt her father's gentle touch on her shoulder as he quietly whispered in her ear, It's yours. Open it. She slowly began to remove the paper, and with tears of brokenness still filling her eyes, she gazed at the contents before her. This is your gift, said the father. It's been here all along, but you've been too focused on other people's gifts to even notice it let alone open it. What she found inside made her heart want to dance with joy. It was the most perfect, perfectly crafted gift she had ever received, and every part of it spoke of her father's love. Joy washed over her, and as she embraced her father, her tears of brokenness changed to tears of gratitude. All she could say was, thank you, thank you, thank you. As the days passed, her spirit seemed to soar higher and higher as the benefits of this gift filled her life. The more she embraced it, the more she loved it and was reminded of the one who loved her enough to create it for her. She thanked the father for not giving her the gift with the shining wrapping because she would have never been able to enjoy this very special gift created just for her and just for this time. She still looked forward to the day when that gift would come, but in the meantime, she was content. That day she vowed to never again let the longing for that which is not hers take away the joy of that which presently is. So you wrote that while you were caring for your, yes. your mother-in-law? Yes. That's beautiful. So I stopped fighting it. Mm-hmm. I said, this is what you have for me today, God. This and all, all of its hardness and hardship and pain. Thank you for it. Mm-hmm. Let me be faithful with it. For the sake of time, we are actually going to pause right there for episode one. There's so much depth to Maggie's story and so much she graciously shared. Come back next week to hear the rest of her story and testimony of how God used her trauma to show her his goodness. Thank you for listening to the Always Good podcast. You can find more information about future episodes and the ever-growing Always Good playlist of songs that are recommended by my guests at emilybromwell.wixsite.com slash alwaysgood or on Spotify under Always Good Playlist by Xavier Brumwell.